Welcome to Top Shelf at the Merrick Library with your host, Carol Antak. Welcome to Top Shelf at Merrick Library. I am your host, Carol Antak, and I thank you all for joining me. Listeners, before I even begin this episode, I'm going to start with an apology to today's guest, the amazing Tiffany Quay Tyson. Tiffany Quay Tyson is the author of the award-winning book we are going to talk about today called The Past is Never. Her debut, Three Rivers, was called a good old-fashioned Southern drama by Booklist, and best-selling author Eleanor Brown called Three Rivers a funny, furious, and tender debut, a rush of a read full of all the beauty and strangeness of the modern South. And you know what, listeners? That's not even the book we're here to talk about. So this is why I owe Tiffany Quay Tyson an apology, because the book we're talking about today is her second book, The Past is Never. And why do I tell you this? I tell you this because The Past is Never has won so many awards. The Willie Morris Award for Southern Fiction, the Mississippi Author Award for Adult Fiction selected by the Mississippi Library Association. We love my fellow librarians. It's also the winner of the 2019 Mississippi Institute of Arts and Letters Award for Fiction, winner of the Janet Heidinger Kafka Prize for Fiction, finalist for the 2019 Colorado Book Awards, and then Deep South Magazine says The Past is Never is an ode to William Faulkner and as Southern as it gets. Well, having said all of that, Tiffany Quay Tyson, thank you so much for taking the time to join me and the listeners of Merrick Library's Top Shelf Podcast. I am thrilled that you are here. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you again for joining me. And if you would, please tell the listeners about The Past is Never. I started writing The Past is Never even before Three Rivers was sold. I mean, for all I knew, it would never be published is the reason I tell you this, because the one thing I think a lot of people who aren't writers don't know is how very mysterious this publication process can be. So you write a book and you hope that it will be published when you're starting out. I mean, there are plenty of writers who know that their next book will be published. But when you're first starting out, you write a book and you hope that it will be published. And I was still in the process of hoping that my first book would be published when I started writing this one. And in some ways, you know, had given up hope a little bit. So I was writing this as much for myself as for anyone else. Once the first book sold, it sort of lit a fire under me to finish it. And what I like to write about in general is like, I grew up in the South. I grew up in Mississippi. So most of my books are set in the South. Most of them are set in Mississippi, or at least largely in Mississippi. Mississippi. And what I set out to write about in this book was this idea that in a broad sense, no two siblings are raised in the same family. And also the fact that two people can experience the same event and come away with very different impressions of what that event means. So there's no spoiler here, but I'm just going to start by saying this sort of the inciting event in the past is never is when two of the characters, Bert, whose actual name is Roberta Lynn, but she hates that. So she goes by Bert. At the time, a 14-year-old girl and her older brother, Willet, and her younger sister, Pansy, who was six at the time, all go swimming in a forbidden, abandoned quarry in the Mississippi Delta. They're not supposed to go there. Their father has told them that the place is cursed, that bad things happen there. They should avoid that area. They should avoid the woods around that area. But it is hot. 
their mother wants them out of the house. And so they do what children do and they go swimming. And during the course of that excursion, that forbidden excursion, Pansy, the youngest child, the youngest sibling goes missing, disappears. And Bert, who is the narrator of this story, first of all, feels guilty, feels at fault. She also very quickly feels abandoned because her mother totally focuses on the loss of this child, as any mother would. Her father has also disappeared, but this is a little less surprising. He often goes away for for stretches of time. And she becomes obsessed with finding the answer to what happened to her sister. Willett, the brother, also wants answers, but he is convinced that the father has something to do with this. So together and sometimes apart, they go looking, searching for answers for what has happened to these missing family members. When I first started writing it, I really wanted to write a story about the stories that families tell each other. And there are a lot of stories that are told within this book. One of the characters is Burton Willett's grandmother, Granny Clem, and she's very good with spinning tales and, and also with not telling anything she doesn't want to tell. She's also very good at keeping secrets. And I've always been really interested in how in a family, like, for example, when a child asks their parents, like, how did you meet? And the parents say, oh, well, we went on a date to dinner or whatever. And then as the years go by, it's like, well, we met at a bar. And then as the years go by, it's, you know, it becomes a little like more truthful and less glossy as you ferret out the truth. So that's a lot of what's happening in the book is Bert is sort of peeling away the layers of her family stories in an effort to find the truth. And that's the thing I was most interested in writing about was this process of peeling away kind of the shiny exterior of the stories that we are told and the stories that we tell in order to get to the truth of the matter, which is sometimes not as pretty, sometimes not as easy, but I think the truth matters. And I think looking for, I think that children look for the truth. They want the truth. So I wanted a, I wanted to write a story about a child who goes looking for the truth and eventually finds it. Whether she's prepared to find that truth, the full truth or not, is the reader's journey as well. And speaking of the journey, not only did I go on this coming-of-age mystery journey with Roberta, or Bert, as she's called in the book, but there were a few scenes that left me out of breath because I was holding my breath, right? (laughs) The past is never has every ingredient for a riveting novel and an excellent book discussion. Did you set out to write... All right. So we know where Three Rivers comes in along with the past is never along that timeline. Did you set out to write this mystery? Was that part of the structure originally when you sat down to outline? It was. As a matter of fact, I mean, I wrote that first. It's not the very first thing. But I wrote that scene where Pansy goes missing quite early with no idea of how I was going to resolve it. And the only real challenge that I set for myself there was that I did not want it to be a stereotypical child gone missing narrative. I mean, I didn't want to find her in a basement somewhere. You know, it's been written, it's been done, and I didn't want to write the same thing. I I wanted a surprising ending and a surprising journey. And so, yeah, I did set out to write something with a mystery at its core. I also really was, I have to say, very early in my writing life, I had written 
written another novel, one that was never published, but I had sent it out. And a lot of the feedback that I got was that people really loved the writing, but the story was too quiet. And so I think as I have developed as a writer, I have that has stuck in the back of my mind and I have really pushed against writing anything too quiet for fear that I'll get that feedback again. So I did set out to write something that had a bit of adventure. I also really liked the idea of having a young-ish narrator, a young-ish main character who grows over the course of the novel, but who starts out in that Southern tradition of young, sassy girls. Um, (laughs) You know, I mean, I grew up reading about them. I grew up reading girls like that. I mean, I I think I probably was that girl to some extent. I really wanted to have a girl on an adventure and many times by herself. I mean, she has Willet to lean on, but Willet is not as interested in finding answers as Bert is. And so she is on her own when it comes to taking some big risks, putting herself in danger, putting other people in danger in some cases. And I liked the idea idea of putting her in danger and seeing how she would find her way out because I knew she would. Like from the minute her voice entered my mind, she was so resilient and plucky and I don't know, determined that I knew she would weather whatever I could set up for her. So I set up a lot of problems for her. Yes. Thank you. Those are the scenes where I held my breath. So (laughs) it was a lot of that. I don't know how I wasn't hyperventilating, especially in the last half of the book. So I do often ask authors about the title of their books. And I was the past is never. Well, I guess explain the provenance, but was that always the original title? So I'm terrible with titles, I think. I, I struggle with them. It was the title. It was the title that I chose before I sent it off to anyone, like, you know, to an agent or an editor or anything. So yes, it was the title that I chose for the book for a long time. It had no title at all. And it comes from, of course, the, the famous Faulkner quote. He said, in the South, the past is never dead. It isn't even past. I love that quote so much because I feel like it's true. I think it's just a really basic truth there. So I did have that in mind. That quote would come back to me as I was working on this novel. And it was very clear to me because there's a whole thread in the novel that actually deals with things that happened in the past to the family, to the town where they grew up. So that was in my mind, this idea that the sins of the past keep recurring and recurring and recurring. And one thing I do believe is that these things that we do that are wrong to the world, to each other, cannot be set right unless we acknowledge the truth of them. So that is what I wanted Bert to do, was to find a way to uncover the truth of the sins of her family's past and the town's past and all of those sorts of things that follow you. So yeah, that was the the title that I came up with when I sent it off. Now I will say the publisher asked me, we brainstormed some other titles. I don't know how many we came up with, but I want to say, you know, somewhere between 30 and 50 other titles that were a possibility. And then they came back and said, you know, we think the first title works best. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's short. And especially in light of the fact that you do go back and forth, which are some of my favorite, oh, I just got the chill. Some of my favorite parts of the book are when we go back in time in the mm-hmm. town with Clem and all of these other things that are happening. And your prose is gorgeous. When you're writing different timelines, do you write that I don't know. How do I ask this question? Is it a linear writing? Do you write one part of the town first and then the second and then the current? Like, how does that work for you? 
No, I wish, because that seems like it would be so efficient. <laughs> it would be organized. Right? Like one scene and then the next scene and then the next scene. But now, in fact, I do not. I write, I, for a long time, I wasn't even sure if the scenes from the past would make it into the novel. I kept writing them and sort of feeling like I was learning my characters and getting some history and getting some information, which is something I need to do. Like I have to figure out where everybody comes from and what makes them tick. But they started growing in a way that was beyond just your typical characterization exercise or setting exercise. They started really growing beyond that. And I started weaving them in just kind of out of curiosity to see how it worked. And then I got really attached to that. And I wrote a lot of scenes that actually never made it in, but I wrote them in bits and pieces and kind of in a separate document to start. At some point I decided they really belonged and I started weaving them in and trying to match them thematically to the thing that had come before, which was kind of, and I had to write some new scenes to make that work. And I was still pretty convinced that once I sent it to my agent or once my agent sent it to an editor, that they would try to tell me to take them out, you know, just because some readers don't like time shifts. Some readers don't like to feel confused, but no one ever did. Actually, that was the one thing I was surprised that no one ever even said to me, why don't you just write this straight linear novel? And I was so grateful because those, I don't know, moments from the past, which I sort of think of as the folklore section of the novel, yeah, yeah. I really fell in love with them. I enjoyed writing them. A lot of them are based on historical events. And so I felt like I had done a lot of work on them and I was very glad they made it onto the page. Well, me too. I cannot imagine the book without them. They're so organically, yeah. beautifully written and perfectly yeah. positioned, which is why I thought, oh, I don't know how the heck, she, I don't know how she did that. But, you know, everyone read it the same way that I did. And the finished product is just, just fantastic. Your character development in the book is terrific. I mean, I could just keep going on listeners. You all know me. Each character is riveting. There isn't one person in the book that I don't want to know more about from birth to Willett, Uncle Chester, my goodness. Um, then there's one character in particular, and I'm sure you've heard this from other people, Bubba Speck. He yeah. has such an interesting, I could see him. He's not on the page that much, but talk about Bubba if you would. Yeah. So that's interesting because I have had other people mention Bubba. He works himself into people's minds, I guess, but he is a pretty minor character in the big scheme of things. I mean, he shows up fairly early as someone who might potentially be involved involved in the disappearance right, of right. the sister. And so there's some suspicion around him, but he's this guy who he's very interested in the paranormal, the supernatural. He's a little paranoid, but I didn't think he was all that. Like I've had a lot of people say that he's so bizarre and he didn't strike me as all that bizarre, which maybe tells you a little something about how I grew up. Cause I, I know people who, who love to listen to late night radio shows about aliens and, you know, know what I mean? Like none of that seemed all that unusual to me. He's on the far end of that type of person, I guess. I mean, he's a little bit extreme, but I don't know. I felt like Bubba was just sort of a good old boy who had some strange ideas about things, but I also know exactly who he is. To me, he doesn't feel strange. He just feels like Bubba. I didn't think of him as strange. I just felt like, oh my gosh, he's a book unto himself. There was so much about him. I had all of these questions, which I cannot share on this podcast because there are too many things going on with him. But when he was on the page, it was just like, am I the only one that wants the goods on Bubba? So he was very interesting. I liked his appearance in the book. I 
life. Everything you did with this book, as I said off mic, it was magic for me. Absolute magic. And as we were talking about dealing with the past, you're trying to outrun your past. You're even thinking that you can is, you know, is an ongoing theme of the book. There's racism, grief, horror, family relationships, not to mention the two Southern settings, right? The Mississippi Delta, the Florida Everglades. The past is never is presented as a Southern Gothic mystery, but it's also a Southern crime. The more I read the Southern novels, the more I just absolutely fall in love with them. And as a city person, I don't feel qualified to speak to what qualifies as Southern fiction or Southern Gothic or Southern crime as a genre except that I love them so much. What places the past is never in this gorgeous alchemy of Southern Gothic fiction? Yeah. You know, the, the interesting thing is, is that when I'm, or when anyone is writing a novel, there are, there are people who write genre fiction who know that they are writing a mystery that follows specific rules and has specific beats that it needs to hit at certain times in the novel. And I love many of those novels, but that is not the kind of book this is. There is a mystery at the center of it. There is some suspense. It definitely is is very Southern. It's set in the South. All of the characters are Southern. And so when I set out to write, I just set out to write. I, you know, people say, write what you know. I mean, there's a lot in here that I don't always write exactly what I know, but I mean, I do know the South. And I lived in Mississippi until I was 21. I worked in the Mississippi Delta. I went to college in the Mississippi Delta. I actually did go to the Florida Everglades while I was writing this book and kayak around as a bit of research. I'm really glad you came um, out. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, and I, you know, spent plenty of time in Florida because that's where you vacation and spring break and right. stuff when sure. you're in the South. So like a lot of that for me is just writing. I mean, it's, you know, it's not writing a specific thing. It's just writing what I write. I don't know how to write anything else. I mean, I would not be able to write a story set in New England because I haven't spent a lot of time there. And, and even now I live in Colorado and I'm, I am working on a novel that is partially set in Colorado, but I'm back in Mississippi already because I just can't seem to sort of write my way. I think where you grow up is the thing that really imprints on you. In terms of the Southern Gothic, that's a label that was, and I, I love, I actually, I love Southern Gothic fiction, but that's a label that it's kind of attached after a novel is published or when a novel is being published. And I've had to think about like, okay, well, what makes it Southern get? What makes it Gothic? And I think it's really this idea of both holding on to the past. I feel like that's what Southern Gothic does is sort of romanticizes the past at the same time you kind of want to burn it down. And there's that weird alchemy of loving the place that you've come from and also hating an awful lot of things about it. I do think that the past has never does that. There are a lot of wonderful things in the places where Bert travels, a lot of tremendous food and music and literature and all that kind of stuff. But there's also a lot of really bad stuff, the stuff that her dad calls the curse or the the evil. And all of that exists in tandem. And I think that that, as much as anything, you know, in any dark fiction will end up being called gothic at some point. But I think it's that mix of darkness and light that really creates that atmosphere. There is a fantastic 
fantastic interview you did with Fiction Unbound. And you said something that really hit home with me. It was such a terrific interview. You're quoted as saying, there is nothing about Southern fiction that makes it inaccessible to readers from Brooklyn or San Francisco or Portland. In fact, those readers would probably love Southern fiction, but they don't hear about most of it. Southern fiction is marketed to Southerners and only a few writers ever break out of those regional designations. And as a reader's advisory librarian and podcast host and book discussion leader, I have to read almost every genre. It's the nature of my job to be informed, to help the reader, the patron standing in front of me, find something fresh, find something new that's really going to hit them. And of course, I have my own sweet spots in literature. But more recently, I've gone down this rabbit hole of reading Southern fiction, and it's extraordinary and gorgeous and treacherous and magical. And those Southern experiences are so different from mine of growing up in Brooklyn and New York City. And I think that's why I'm kind of nuts over this genre and probably why I love Western so much, because it is so completely foreign to me. But I do love that you said that, and I appreciate that you said that in that interview. Thank you. Well, I get frustrated with the way they pigeonhole books sometimes. I get that we need to like have some sense of what we're looking for. We need to be able to walk into a bookstore or a library and say, oh, I'm really interested in a Western adventure story. But I also think it pigeonholes us in a way that can be detrimental. I mean, it would be ridiculous for me to ever say, well, I am not going to read a story set in New York. I don't care. Right. I've never lived in New York. I, don't care. I mean, I love New York. But I mean, for me to say that would be, or, or London, I, I can't read a story set in London. I don't know anything about London. Why do I care? No one says that ever any more than I would say, well, I'm not going to read a book by a man. And yet That's right. I am here to tell you that there are an awful lot of people out there who don't read books by women because they are written by women. And there are an awful lot of people out there who don't read Southern books because they think Southerners don't matter. I do think that's the biggest issue is that there's a big contingent. I I get it. We're problematic sometimes, but there's a large contingent of people who seem to think that Southerners don't count. And so their stories don't count. And we go through phases where people do break out. I mean, you know, Faulkner, Eudora Welty, a number of There's so many. The rich Southern tradition of literature is, we could go on and on, but for the ordinary writer writing about Southern things, I think there is this knee jerk, well, I don't much care about that. I mean, I was in a writing workshop once and a woman said, I just don't know that I care all that much about reading about somebody from the Mississippi Delta. I mean, that was essentially the feedback I got. And I was like, cool. I mean, there's so many things to choose from, but why pigeonhole yourself in that way? Yeah. You're, you're naming all the, the grand Southern writers. And in the publisher notes for this book, the notes say that the past is never as perfect for fans of Flannery O'Connor and Dorothy Allison. And a big yes to both. And I have to say that Dorothy Allison's Bastard Out of Carolina is one of my favorite books of all time. And of course, me too. Yeah. I mean, Ruth Ann and Bone, they live in my head, but they living in my head now with Bert. And I was like that image. (laughs) I just saw them all together. And I thought, oh my gosh. And there's even Delia Bird, right? From Cave Dweller. Gosh, I mean, I love both of those books so much. All of which 
is to say that I will go back and read Three Rivers as soon as we are done with <laughs> this podcast. <laughs> and I I will recommend both of your books to our listeners. Well, thank you, first of all, for doing that. And thanks to all the librarians. I, I grew up in libraries. We could not afford to buy every book that I wanted to read of course, right. at all because I was a big reader. All writers were big readers. And I would go to the library every weekend with my mother. I mean, sometimes she would just drop me there and I would spend as much time as I needed to get as many books as they would let me check out. And it was never enough, but it was, it got me through the week. So thank you. (laughs) But thank you for providing us with the tools to make these recommendations, to introduce readers to your work. It's just, we're, we're in the lucky place to have, to have you. Speaking of checking out books at the library, any books you can recommend to our listeners? Actually, we were talking about Southern books and there's a bunch that I love. I mean, you've actually interviewed a number of the authors who I would recommend. Scott Blackburn, Mark Westmoreland, Michael Ferris Smith, I think is doing amazing work. All of his books I would recommend, but these are a few that you might not be as familiar with. The Last List of Miss Judith Kratt by Andrea Bobotis. I highly recommend it. It's set in the Carolinas. There's a mystery at the heart of this book too. It also deals with family secrets. I really enjoyed it. It's spooky, but also uplifting in a way. Like It's got a lot going on for it. So I, I would highly recommend that. I would also recommend anything by Kelly J. Ford. She has two books. The first one was Cottonmouths, and the second one is Real Bad Things. She's an Arkansas, well, I don't think she lives in Arkansas now, but her stories are based in Arkansas. She was born and raised in Arkansas. So again, you're getting that sort of Southern crime, Southern mystery. And I, I think those are really, really great. And then finally, for a change of geography, Erica T. Worth's White Horse which just came out this year. Blew my mind. Oh, good. I'm so glad. I highly recommend that, of course. That was extraordinary. All of those books. And I want to point listeners to your website. It is terrific. It is chock full of your essays and short stories. And I swear I don't have a favorite, but I enjoyed each one. Thanks, Mississippi is just (laughs) unbelievable. The sleeve is making a statement. Step aside, ladies, is just so astute and timely. I mean, it's excellent content. And I appreciate that you provide that for readers like me. So listeners, you've got to check that out. I'll put the link for that. Anything you can share, you did a little bit about what you might be working on next. Yeah, I am working on, I'm actually trying to finish up another novel and it is partially set in Denver, partially set in Mississippi. And it's essentially the story of what happens when a young newlywed gets the gift of one of those DNA tests from her new mother-in-law and takes it and discovers that she is not who she believed she was. So she goes back to unravel the past. I will never take one of those tests. It's scary, isn't it? I, yeah. Yes. I yeah. will never. There's things I don't want to know. Yeah. I'm really good. The past is never. That's fine. I'm not. <laughs> I'm good with all of that. I love this interview. I'm having such a great time. Where can readers find you on social media? Well, actually, I'm currently on a little social media break. But by the time readers listen to this, I'll probably be back. I'm on Twitter at, at TQ Tyson. 
and Instagram at TQ Tyson. And I do also have an author page on Facebook, but I am admittedly rarely there. So Twitter and Instagram tend to be my go-to. I will put all the links for all of these things for these fabulous book recommendations, the incredible website. Today's book, The Past is Never by today's amazing guest, the wonderful Tiffany Quay Tyson is on shelves right now. So please grab a copy at your local library or your local independent bookstore. The Past is Never is published by Skyhorse Publishing. And listeners, I'm telling you, The Past is Never is book club gold. The historical fiction aspects to this book are phenomenal and would make for a fantastic discussion. I'm kind of jealous that you guys are going to be reading it for the first time. But having said that, Tiffany Quay Tyson, I thank you so much for joining me and the listeners today on Merrick Library's Top Shelf Podcast. I promise I will not miss your next party, and I hope you will join me again for whatever comes next. Thank you so much. I'd be happy to. Listeners, I hope you are as excited as obviously I am. I thank all of you for joining me today. Remember to follow Top Shelf at Merrick Library on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you find most podcasts. For the latest and the greatest at Merrick Library, check out our website at MerrickLibrary.org. Special thanks to Merrick Library Director Dan Chusmere, Assistant Director Diane Bondi, and the Merrick Library Board of Directors for getting us off the ground and on to the airwaves. Until the next time, remember to keep us on your Top Shelf.